This podcast series is brought to you from the University of Winchester. We invite you to listen in as we talk with both academics and practitioners about their approaches to peace building and conflict transformation, discussing some of the most complex and pressing challenges we face in the world today. Okay, so welcome to this podcast. I'm Mark Owen from the Centre of Religion, Reconciliation and Peace. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by Owen Fraser. Good afternoon, Owen. And welcome to our relatively new podcast on all things religion, reconciliation and peace building. So Owen is currently Senior Programme Officer in the Mediation Support Team, Centre for Security Studies at ETH Zurich. And also, um, as we were just discussing, carrying out his doctorate at the University of Birmingham where he's examined, examining facilitative mediation in protracted peace negotiations. So Owen, um, I first met you uh, when we were co-authoring um, the USIP publication Religion in Conflict and Peace Building and Analysis Guide, which was a fascinating if sometimes challenging process. Um, but we've actually asked you here today to talk about your most recent publication, which is with Jean-Nicolas Bitter, uh, The Instrumentalization of Religion in Conflict, in which you offer, I think it's fair to say, a new and perhaps slightly controversial perspective on instrumentalization. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, th- thank you, Mark, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, yes, I guess we are perhaps trying to be slightly provocative with this piece, short piece. Um, yeah. Right, excellent. So, so the intention of the podcast is really try and understand a bit about the, also the underpinning thoughts, foundations of research, research development and practice. Um, it's the sort of questions we ask, we get asked all the time about by our, our postgraduate students, um, by practitioners, other researchers. You know, how do you arrive at this understanding? How do you develop research projects? So. Uh, if I may, I want to start with a question asking you about the background and stimulus for this particular piece of work and why you're focused on instrumentalization and why now? Uh, yeah, uh, good question. Um, so maybe a little background on, on, on the context in which I work. So I work in a, we have a program at our centre called Culture and Religion and Mediation, which is a joint initiative together with the Swiss Foreign Ministry, the Federal Department of Foreign Affairs, which has a whole division on uh, the Human Security Division that works on peace building and, and human rights and peace promotion. And within there, there's a sector of activity that works on religion, politics and conflict. And Jean-Nicolas Bitter, who co-authored the piece, he's been working there for basically founded that whole thematic area and been working there for, I think, over 15 years. Yeah. Um, and then within the context of our kind of joint collaboration many years ago, we started a, an annual course sort of on religion and mediation aimed at practitioners trying to uh, mainstream, I think, a little bit more into kind of, tr- uh, kind of classical understandings of mediation and conflict transformation, what the role of religion is in conflict and what that means for your kind of mediation and conflict transformation efforts. And we run that course every year. And one of the topics that we don't kind of highlight as a topic, but always comes up in all the discussions is about instrumentalization of religion. Um, and and we found that there's just some people who very much that is their reaction to discussing religion and conflict. So when you say what role does religion play in conflict, very quickly the word instrumentalization pops up as an explanation. And I think what we try to do in the course is challenge a little bit the notion that 
all presence of religion in conflict is instrumentalization and to, to open people's minds to also other ways of thinking about and analyzing religion's role. Um, and so then having had this conversation numerous times in the course with various participants, we decided we should finally write some of these things down and maybe spark a wider conversation um, yeah, on this topic. So that's where the idea came from. Thank you. Yeah. And of course, that course, um, religion and mediation course, I mean, it's come to be known. I don't think, um, you know, uh, I can confidently say this has become to know globally. Really. I mean, there's so many people I know who have been on it, talked about how excellent it is, you know, how much they've got out of it. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those people because I did apply once, but you turned me down, I seem to remember. So uh, maybe one overqualified. <laughs> maybe one day I'll get to come on it. But so it's a topic that comes up uh, time and again. And, you know, really in scholarship, that's evident as well. And if you read any scholars who write about religion and peace building, this seems, you know, instrumentalization is mentioned repeatedly in a very negative fashion. And uh, it led me into thinking when I was rereading your article again this morning, why, why do you think that might be? Why is instrumentalization firstly seen so negatively? Obviously you talk about that a bit in your piece, but, um, yeah, why, why do you think it's become such a, a, an important topic for both scholars, but also people of religion, religious peace builders, etc.? So, well, I think the word instrumentalization in and of itself just has a negative connotation in most people's minds. So when people say, you know, I think you could attempt to use the word in a non-judgmental sense, but I think when most people use it, they are pronouncing a judgment and saying, somebody is instrumentalizing religion, this is a bad thing. Um, and I think why people are so, one of the reasons I think that it's kind of such a, such a topic in a way that touches people is because, because religion is so close to many people's hearts. So when they feel that religion is being instrumentalized, this is for them a, a terrible thing. It's, you know, that's something that, that, that kind of defines who they are. And if they see what they think is their religion or somebody using, using their religion or, or, or their fellow believers in some way, as a means to an end rather than taking them seriously, then this is kind of, uh, yes, it's to not really treat them as, as, uh, mm. as people with, with valid points of view. Uh, and I think that's one of the problems. I think uh, the other interest is just that people, that, you know, I, when we do not deny in the piece that religion does get instrumentalized in conflict. Mm. And I think that this is a very, very important dynamic to understand in conflicts. And I think that particularly when we see how how religion is used to to sometimes let's say to fuel conflicts in a way people and people see that as instrumentalization then they see this as a key dynamic to kind of address so from a religious peace point building point of view understanding how this instrumentalization is going on and how it's fueling conflict maybe will then better help you to address it and to address that dynamic so i think that's another reason why it's an important topic to to yeah. think about yes because often it strikes me, I don't know if you'd agree, as slightly hypocritical when particularly religious actors, I mean, we can't generalise about religion, of course, and we both, you know, I know we both agree on that and we've discussed this many times, but certainly some religions you look at, you, you know, almost integral to the way they work is, is a process of instrumentalization of each other within religion. I'm thinking particularly, um, and again, I know we discussed this before about something like Hinduism, where Brahmins making money from other people to carry out death rights, etc., or instrumentalizing their power over other castes and other people is all is, is an integral part of religion. So, 
I don't know if you have a view particularly on what, why in peace building, because I think in other parts of religion, coming from a religious studies background, it's not necessarily seen as a problem. So again, I was thinking earlier, rereading your article, why in peace building have we got this particular view of instrumentalization? I know, I know you've answered that to some extent, but do you think there's something particular about the type of people or type of religious actors perhaps that are involved in peace building where it seems so negatively? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think it probably does speak a little bit to, well, maybe two things. One is, you know, what you really understand by instrumentalization and what I was saying before about it having a negative connotation. And I think probably that it has a negative connotation is, is linked to a particular kind of view of the world and the moral philosophy, which I think referred to in the paper is often kind of rooted in this kind of Kantian ethics, you know, about not using yes. means to ends. And so I think it probably also comes from quite a kind of Western enlightenment point of view, which, which again has a particular view of religion and how religion should play a role in society. And so then particular understandings of kind of, yes, how religion can, should or should not be instrumentalized are definitely, I think, colored by those kinds of uh, yeah, world views. And so quite possibly in other, in other places, it's not you know, certain kinds of behavior in, in no way seen as problematic. Um, and I think then, again, that speaks also to the, the distinction we try to draw on the paper between something being instrumental and, and being instrumentalized. So I think you can, you can use something in order to achieve an end, you know, as an instrument. Um, and then when there kind of becomes this moral judgment in it, so this instrumentalization, I think, is this idea that the, the, the way in which you use it is not the way that uh, it or the person who, 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 whose beliefs you're somehow manipulating maybe would want to be would want to be dealt with so it's that you're not kind of engaging with the person genuinely and engaging with their concerns you're maybe mm. using those for your own ends um, and i think that's the i think that in particular kind of moral view of the world that that's uh, seen as a very bad thing yeah and i think that's a really important distinction you made in the paper about that, that difference between religion being instrumental and then instrumentalized and i think that's a really good point about different ways of perceiving and understanding the role of religion in in conflict or peace building so um so slightly shifting topic but i think it's related then so you also make another important point i thought about how religion and politics even in kind of western european countries which perhaps traditionally seen as uh countries that have the greatest separation between religion and politics that actually in reality that the, the two are you know essentially in, inseparable even if we're just talking about the influence, say, of an individual politician's religious beliefs upon their politics. And I always thought it'd be really interesting to do a study, and probably someone's already done it, to, to ask politicians if really, particularly, say, for example, in the UK, where we have this distinction between uh, religion and politics, if really their religion does inspire their beliefs, their votes in the House of mm -hmm. Commons, etc. Because I, I'm sure a lot of them would say yes in, in private. So why do you think, given that, that, you know, again, coming from a religious studies background, it seems self-evident that the people's worldviews, beliefs, religions will have an impact on their kind of moral judgments, etc. I mean, this seems to be something that everybody must know. And yet we seem to have uh, a great resistance to accepting that. And we, uh, as in society or governments, are particularly unwilling to acknowledge that, that actually the two are inseparable and religion and politics probably forever have been uh, inextricably intertwined. And I just wondered if you had a view on why we find that, that, that uh, recognition of that inseparability so difficult. 
I mean, I think it probably is a bit this legacy of, of right, the Enlightenment and the attempt to separate religion and politics. So there's still great discomfort to admit, you know, having supposedly achieved the separation between the church and state and the role of religion, you know, kind of managing to kind of compartmentalize religion as something separate from what goes on in the political sphere. So then, you know, that's been kind of carefully guarded. And so to admit that actually no religion is still there in the, in the political sphere is to kind of undermine the foundations on which kind of the modern Western state has built itself. Um, and I kind of had another theory also that it's, it's maybe an unwillingness to admit that the potential for conflict in our societies is greater than, than we let on. So I think that also that kind of modern nation states are kind of built on this idea that there's a common set of values that we all adhere to and that's how the society holds together. And you hear this all the time, right? When yes. you know, British values or whatever, like appeals to common sets of values. And so, and that these are somehow seen as secular values, right? It's somehow connected to the state. This is what we all have in common, the members of such and such a great nation. And you know, there's no particular religious justification. So if somebody then comes a little long and says, well, actually I'm gonna vote differently on this because my religious values tell me this, then you're actually kind of pointing to a division that exists in society between kind of your, your views and probably many of your fellow co-religionists and what everyone has supposedly agreed are the common values of, of society. And so I think, I think there's also a little bit of a looking the other way. Like we don't want to admit that there's a, um, there's more potential for division than the, well that there is more potential division than, than we have let on yeah yeah no that's a really good point i mean i totally agree and i also was reading your blog this morning and i picked out a quote that you may remember writing so claiming others are instrumentalizing religion is to risk positioning yourself politically within a conflict thereby violating one of the core tenets of good mediation practice, remaining impartial. Um, I, I won't get into the, is imp impartiality really possible, but um, I'm sure you've explored that in your PhD research and work uh, endlessly. But the, the other point that occurred to me was certainly if you want to be, and the point you're making is if you want to remain impartial within a mediation process, or at least be seen to be impartial, Obviously, you don't want to be seen to be accusing people of instrumentalization because that can cause bad feeling, you know, uh, political alignment, all those sorts of issues you cause. But what it occurred to me was have a, as a broader peace builder or within a peace building practice or mission. So, so my sort of killer question, really, I guess, in, in response to your article about is, uh, instrumentalization is as a peace building scholar or practitioner actually is the instrumentalization of religion a legitimate peace building strategy so in situations of violent conflict suffering we know you know in practice obviously the the, the theories around peace building and the ideals often break down or come into tensions with realities and i was just wondering is it okay then to stop a conflict save lives suffering to as a peace building practitioner to instrumentalize religion and you know does does the um means ever ju justify the ends in these situations yeah i actually thought you were going to ask me a different killer question so but uh, which i will answer maybe first partially yes. um, but then come to that because i think so you're absolutely right and i think at some point we make also in the paper right that really how you when you see or think you see instrumentalization you know, what you do about it, it really depends on where you sit or what your kind of role you want to have. And as you point out, right, if, yes, if you want to be a mediator and be impartial, then you, you need to be careful. 
But as a peace builder, as we were saying before, maybe you do want to try and do something about what you perceive as instrumentalization, like that there are definitely instrumentalization dynamics going on that are problematic and need to be addressed. And maybe there are things other than mediation that could be done to constructively sort of dampen down those dynamics. Um, and so I, what I just wanted to say there was, I think part of the reason that we wrote the piece was I think that people go there very quickly. So what, like what I was saying at the beginning, that it's almost a, for some people a knee-jerk reaction to diagnose instrumentalization and then straight away say, well, heck, you know, we could solve this conflict if only we could stop people from instrumentalizing religion. And I think our, our kind of pushback against that is to say, well, let, I think, you know, take a pause. Are they really instrumentalizing? How do you know? Well, you can't really know for sure. And I think that you have to allow room for doubts and actually maybe, first of all, approach people at face value and take them seriously for what they're saying. And of course, you know, there are, I think, different criteria you can use to try and assess how, how reliable your judgment of instrument, instrumentalization might be. So just to, I just wanted to add that in there to kind of say, I think that's also a bit the, the, the point of the piece is to try and make people take a, take a step, take a pause and, and think a little bit more deeply rather than jumping to a conclusion. Um, but on your specific question there about is it possible or is it okay to instrumentalize, I think that we talk about a bit at the end of the paper to say definitely there's, I think there's a lot of a movement now within peace building development to work more with religious actors and, and uh, with religious communities, realizing that, you know, so much of the world is religious and that basically if you want to engage with the world, you need to engage with religion and that there's huge resources there that can play a very constructive role. Um, but then, of course, there comes with it this, this instrumentalization risk. And I, I would sort of say, I think Jean-Nicolas had a story about someone basically saying, you know, religious leaders saying, we want to be instrumentalized, you know, come, come please instrumentalize us. Um, and I think it's a question of how you engage with each other. I think it is totally possible to have kind of a common goal, but for completely different reasons. And if everyone is kind of on board and discussed and has an understanding of why the other is doing what they're doing and what they hope to get out of it and it's really a relationship of equals then i think kind of mutual instrumentalization in that sense uh for me I, is not problematic i think the difficulty is when when it is really instrumentalization as the other is used as a means to an end without actually trying to understand or give them a real role in shaping whatever it is one's trying to do um so you know kind of classical when you think of kind of politicians instrumentalizing kind of religious identity politics and so forth, where they're just trying to heat things up so they'll get more votes. Um, but they probably don't really care about the concerns of those people who, whose votes they're getting. Um, yeah, you know, that is deeply prob problematic, but if they actually do respond to those concerns and they really are representing those people, then, then is it really instrumentalization anymore? I'm, I'm not so sure. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. Thanks, Owen. And, and you, you made me think a lot about the sort of peace building projects we've observed. And I, I think the point you're making about actually instrumentalization is quite a complex, uh, a multifaceted phenomenon within those peace building projects. So there's an element, I think, at which um, some religious leaders or senior people within communities might be forming that partnership, being willing to be instrumentalized in, in turn for some kind of benefits, whether that's in terms of, you know, participation, power, whatever. But then there might be a whole another section of the community that are essentially being instrumentalized by them in turn to, to, to gain their gains. So there's a whole knock-on effect, isn't there? And there's several different levels 
Uh, Absolutely, and I think I think that's something one needs to be aware of as a as a peace builder, right? That you know, you you go in there and you create new incentive structures for people, maybe as you say, leaders who may see that they get something out of it, but it's not necessarily something that is something that all of their community wants, and they end up delegitimizing themselves somehow in the eyes of their community by seeing as sort of selling out somehow or pursuing some goal that isn't aligned, and so. I think one has to be very careful when working with religious communities and using the kind of religious dimensions of things that you you don't kind of undermine the the, the structures of the religious communities by by um, you getting some people on board but not others and actually creating new divisions and conflict uh, within groups. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. So, so what would be your kind of um, response? I think to some certainly. Uh, religious studies stroke religious peacebuilding scholars who seem to suggest and practitioners for that reason that instrumentalization of any kind can never be um you know ex uh, justified or acceptable i mean is that would you say that i mean that's a, I, I guess clear in some terms or do you think actually it's much more complex than that and you know, actually what instrumentalization is, is so complex, you can't have such a hard and fast rule. I mean, it's just something I've heard people say and actually written in the scholarship that it's a big no-no instrumentalizing religion. You always have to accept them, obviously, on, you know, their identity, beliefs, etc. And it's only through that real mutual understanding and partnership you can work with people. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I would tend to that view. I mean, it a little bit depends how you end up defining instrumentalization. Yeah. Yeah, if you define it as inherently something bad, then of course your answer is yes, it's a no-no. Yes. Um, mm, it's good point. But I think it's a grey area where, where, like I said, I think you can, you can, people can recognise that your motives are not the same as theirs, mm. um, but they can be okay with that. Yes. Um, but I think it's then, a, you, you, it's this sort of consent principle. You need, you need, you need people to be making informed consent about working with you and. Uh, um, you know, so if someone's happy to be instrumentalized, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you, if you want to call it that, and you both kind of agree, yeah, yeah, we're instrumentalizing each other, or you're instrumentalizing me, but you know, I'm getting something out of this, and it's it's I see this for the greater good, then then I think you know, if everyone's consenting, it's no problem. I think it's much more when there's some kind of hidden agenda going on, or people yes. are effectively yeah, being manipulated or promised something that isn't necessarily what they're going to get. So, yeah. Okay. Excellent, thank you. So, where next for this line of research? Do you think have you got any plans to continue, or or have you got any suggestions for anybody else who's interested in in this particular subject where it might go next? What more needs to be done in this area? Uh, so, I mean, I think we have no plans for very much a kind of practice-focused kind of program. So, we this I mean, this is not an in-depth piece of research, but more a policy piece trying to get a message out. Um, you know, and then there's been spin-off blogs and discussions with different kind of um, platforms. And also we just exactly wanted to have something useful to hand out to all our participants in our course when this uh, topic comes up for debate. But I think there's definitely, I mean, a whole, a whole lot of work that could be done around what I was referring to there about, well, if you do accept that instrumentalization happens, and it is sometimes a harmful dynamic in conflicts, particularly I think around kind of identity politics and so forth, what can you as a peace builder do about that? And how can you engage with those dynamics in a, 
in a constructive way that doesn't compromise you from the, from the get-go because you basically, you know, have alienated some of the actors you need to work with by telling them that they're instrumentalizing things. So how can you kind of even, you know, it's a very difficult topic to somehow even approach because yes, by naming the topic, you already kind of compromise your ability to work on it somehow. And so I think looking more at how people have tried to address this and what works, I think would be really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so if we were designing a research project, an in-depth research project around this, thinking of our kind of postgraduate students and other people who might be, I guess it might be a case of trying to, uh, yeah, firstly, like you say, uh, a, a lot of it depends on your definition of instrumentalization to some extent, doesn't it? So, uh, and I guess that is also culturally, contextually, kind of or, almost case by case basis conditioned to some extent. Um, and yeah, understanding, as you say, from people's views who are participating in the project would be really interesting if mm. how happy people are to be instrumentalized or instrumentalized in, in whatever definition you're using in order to um, yeah, reap the, the, the gains of participating in peace building or part of a peace process. I'm, mm. Obviously, I'm just thinking aloud here. Please feel free to join in and correct me. No, I think it's really, really interesting. I mean, I think I could see already two like avenues there. As you say, I think it would be very interesting to research from a kind of more, let's say, interpreter's point of view, like what what are the different understandings of instrumentalization in different cultures and contexts? How does this word get used? And I talked to a colleague who says, you know, in the, particularly like you see in Middle East politics, how it gets used a lot really to delegitimize your own political opponents. So you accuse people of instrumentalizing religion in order to undermine their them and their support. And, now that would be very interesting. And then, yeah, I think you could take another kind of academic tack and kind of make up your own definition of instrumentalization to say, this is a thing, you know, now let's go and look at how that plays out in context X, Y, and Z, and maybe what people are doing about that. And you know, I think there's a difference between using a term in a context where you're trying to operate and using it as a kind of analytic description as a kind of researcher stepping back a bit from things. Yes, yeah. It sounds like you're postdoc to me. Owen, so. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Switching topics, we were just thought uh, started talking a little bit about your current research at the beginning of this podcast, and I wonder if if you want to end, it's up to you. Just maybe um, sharing a little bit about your your current research as as part of your uh, doctoral research, and uh, thinking about what what the I know you're not quite at the end, but you're very much get, uh, nearly getting there. What kind of insights do you think has come out of your particular area of research? So, I mean, I should sort of preface this by saying that my doctoral research originally started as something completely unrelated to my work on religion and conflict. So very much interested in mediation still. And so it looks at, um, basically the question I'm trying to answer is how does mediation really operate and function in formal peace negotiations? I've been studying the historical case of the El Salvador peace negotiations to really understand what was the role and the mechanism of mediation there in those peace negotiations. Because I think we have a lot of ideas about how mediation works, a lot of prescriptive theories about how it should work, but not a lot of in-depth description and, and kind of analysis of what really happens. Um, and that I'm happy to say that somehow <laughs> in the process of my research, it does start to come closer to some of the work I'm doing on religion, because I think what I've I'm really looking at is how the mediator plays a role in helping parties to kind of 
or with the parties construct framings of understandings of what's going on and so that the process of, of a negotiation actually is a whole exercise in kind of rival parties in a negotiation framing things a certain way in order to argue for why they should get such and such and the other gives another framing of the situation says no no I should get this and then the mediator's role is somehow to help them come to a new a reframe the situation in a way that kind of brings them towards agreement um, and so I think that where that links then a little bit to, to the kind of religion and some of the work we do in our program is, is really around this whole role of ideas and how uh, you know, rather than the negotiations being seen as a very kind of rationalist, materialist kind of thing about, uh, which is kind of maybe the more realist school of thought, uh, that really how people construct their understandings of the world and how they construct their particular understandings of particular moments in time, even in a negotiation, totally affect how, how what they think should be the outcome. Um, and so that as a peace builder, as a mediator, I think we have a really important role there to play in kind of um, helping with this 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 co-construction of understandings of the world through kind of reframing things, proposing new framings of things, and I think there there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of research already done on political science on this, but yes. um, there's still a lot more to do. I think about how this can be done and when and how effectively. And and, and learn. I think we could probably in an area where, as practitioners, we could actually learn a lot from existing research. There is a lot of out there and. Um, it would be really useful in thinking how we can shift narratives, shift framings of situations to more kind of constructive uh, outlooks. Yeah, no, no, that sounds fascinating. And sorry, I slightly put you on the spot there asking you about your current research, but it sounds like that's going to be the next podcast when your book's out. So we look forward <laughs> to inviting you back. So yeah, just a couple of months away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. So yeah, thank you very much, Erin. It's been a great pleasure as ever. Um, Thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure to reconnect and I uh, really enjoy discussing. Yeah, we'll be putting a link to uh, Owen's latest article and blog post um, up, up with the podcast, so please read it.